1: This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from designobserver.com. On this program, Debbie Millman talks with the O Group's Eric Baker about the history of American design, what makes a design soulful, and how to create a brand identity. Design doesn't begin at all until we've done some mood boards, we've looked at what we want to be, what we don't want to be, Here's Debbie Millman.
0: Eric Baker is the design director for The O Group, a branding and design agency here in New York City that focuses on luxury brands. Their clients include Salvatore Ferragamo, Remy Quantro USA, and the Union Square Hospitality Group. Before he worked at The O Group, Eric ran his own design firm, Eric Baker Design Associates. His books include Great Inventions, Good Intentions, An Illustrated History of American Design Patents, and Hitting the Road, The Art of the American Roadmap. He is also a colleague of mine here at the School of Visual Arts, where he teaches the history of graphic design and corporate identity. Welcome to Design Matters, Eric.
1: Hi, Debbie. Thank you for having me.
0: Oh, it's long overdue. It's so wonderful to have you here in the
1: studio. It's a real honor. Thanks.
0: So I want to ask you one of my favorite questions. It's a question that I ask a lot of my design heroes. So tell me about your first creative memory.
1: While it perhaps is less creative, but more of an indicator of design was when I was a little boy, six, seven, eight, I would walk by the coffee table and straighten out all the magazines and organize them according to size or color. And... I think that that really showed a, an early uh, inclination to wanting to create visual order. I still remember that. And I also remember having a tremendous love for letters. I didn't know it was typography, but I loved letters and I loved drawing letters. And what making. did you love about letters? That they were each different, that you could say things with them, that you could say bang in a certain way. Or you could write your name in a certain way. And it, learning to write and loving handwriting, you'd want it to develop your own signature, which was your trademark, which was your who you were.
0: Part of your identity.
1: So I always loved that.
0: What did your parents think about your penchant for organizing the magazines on the coffee table?
1: Well, I was always a little bit odd as a kid. <laughs> uh, I, I was a kind of a you know, square peg in a round hole. In what way? When I was in fourth grade, I wanted desperately to be a beatnik. I thought beatniks were great. And uh, embarrassingly to say, this was the Eisenhower years. Wow, so you are really kind of
0: ahead of your time there.
1: And I just thought beatniks were it. And I would wear a white shoe and a black shoe. I would wear different socks. Did you wear a beret? No. I shaved my eyebrows off. Did you? Because I thought that, well, that would be different.
0: Thankfully, they've grown back.
1: My mother was thrilled at that. She, just, she was very, very happy about that. I also found from the time I was about 10, I grew up in San Diego. But from the time I was about 10, I really wanted to live in New York. That's where Pollock was. That's where the artists were. That's where everything was happening. And while living in California at that time was wonderful, it was a paradise I never felt of that place, and I've always felt attracted to New York.
0: And so when did
1: you move here? I was in my early 30s when I moved here. Wow. So it took you
0: quite a long time to make the jump.
1: I remember when I left art school, I hitchhiked from San Francisco to New York and spent about two and a half, three weeks in New York. And I was 23. I really loved it. But quite honestly, I was afraid to move here. Why? Why? I thought everybody that was here was brilliant, and would I make it? And I, I was afraid.
0: So what gave you the courage to finally do it?
1: Well, I think I had to do it. It wasn't a matter of I wanted to, but more than anything, I sort of had to. I felt if I didn't, my life would be full of regret. So, I, I, you know, I had to do that. And when I moved here, I knew not one person. And I never felt more at home in my whole life as when I came to New York.
0: What year did you come to New York?
1: 1983.
0: Oh, that was the year I graduated college and moved to New York as well. So that was an extraordinary time in New York City. And it was right before the big design explosion in New York. I mean, I sort of see the beginning of the design movement that we're still living in
1: now, beginning in 1988, wouldn't you say?
0: A little bit before maybe?
1: You know, I I, I have to disagree with you completely. Okay, let's go that, at it. I think that design has always been in New York, in one way or another. And to me, the golden period... Oh, I know what you're going to say, pushpin. You no, know, I'm going to say the You know, the 50s, the 60s, Ladislav Sutinar, who was the great Czechoslovakian designer, was working here. Paul Rand was here. Bradbury Thompson. Lester Beale. All the great 50s designers who brought modernism to the United States or who helped nurture modernism.
0: Well, they actually helped create the design discipline. They created the design discipline. Right, right. So I agree with you in that respect.
1: And also, you know, the 60s must have been a rockin' great time. Jeremiah and Geismar, Robert Brownjohn, Pushpin, Lou all those people were, for me, the kind of foundation of what attracted me to New York. I thought the 80s were were fantastic, but it was uh, a—when we look back on it, it was a a time of great— the beginning of great change with technology in in 84, 85 happening. And I think that a lot of the design that was happening at that time, it was great, it was fun, and it was, for lack of a better term, handmade.
0: Prior to to 85, 86. Yes. yes, yes.
1: And you saw a lot of influences from California happening in New York with California New Wave design, you know, sort of Swiss punk design from the 70s and 80s. But that was the time, you know, when uh, Tibor came up.
0: Well, that's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about 1988, 1989, 1990. Right, right. That's first what I'm referring to as this explosion and what I think has redefined what graphic design means in our culture now. Right. And that is the time that most profoundly impacted What I believe to be true about graphic design and what I thought to be possible with graphic design and changed my life forever. So maybe I'm speaking very narcissistically about the explosion.
1: I think what it is is that we all relate to periods of our lives that these are signposts for us. But if we do look back at the eighties, there is some seriously ugly stuff too. Uh, <laughs> yeah. You know, nineteen eighty
0: six, nineteen eighty seven.
1: The clothing, the, you know, uh, the music the hair, videos, the music. Uh, <laughs> the there music, was some. Yeah. There was some pretty. You know, when we look back on it, kind of embarrassing things. But uh, nonetheless, it was a great time.
0: You talked about the influx of technology beginning in 1984, 1985. Was that when it began for you? Because I didn't really start using any technology in my work until 88,
1: 89. Well, my first job in New York was working for a rather large corporate design firm.
0: And that was?
1: It was a firm called Muir Cornelius Moore. They got bought and absorbed some years ago.
0: How did you get that first job?
1: I sent my portfolio to Roz Goldfarb. Roz Goldfarb is uh, a headhunter, placement, uh, recruiter. recruiter, A wonderful human being.
0: Roz got me my job at Sterling Brands. She She changed my life. Unbelievable.
1: (laughs) You know, just unbelievable. And uh, within three weeks, she had me an interview. And I flew back to New York, got this job, and moved here. And my primary client was IBM. And this was 1984, and I'm working at IBM, and I'm all of a sudden seeing this thing called Macintosh come out, and everything they were doing was just extraordinarily brilliant. And frankly, at that time, I felt that IBM was way, way behind Apple. Well, it was. And even when they attempted at that time to increase their design awareness, they hired Richard Sapper, the great uh, German designer, to design one of their portable computers, which we called a luggable because it weighed about 800 pounds. Uh, (laughs) Back in the day. And I left that job and I bought a Macintosh. This is 1985, so a Mac SE, if I no, remember, a, uh, a Mac Plus, which oh, was the was, second generation okay. Mac. And I knew immediately this was it. This was a total game changer, and I'd better learn this. And it was exciting, especially when I got my first twenty megabyte hard drive. Wow! Uh, that was yeah. That, was that a felt big like it deal. could hold the whole universe, yes. right? But they they say in life that there are two things we can be sure of death and taxes uh, i think it's three death taxes and everything changes and if we don't adapt to those changes we can choose to or not but things march forward and uh, i think what we're experiencing right now is probably the most revolutionary period of time in media, in technology, in graphic design, in everything. But I think because we're in the middle of it, it's for some folks it's hard to see that revolution going on.
0: Well, it's a constant adjustment right. and a constant adaptation. Right. When you first started working on your Mac+, Plus, how did it impact your design work at the time? How did it impact the style of the way that you were creating work?
1: Well, I think the idea that you could do things quickly, that you could see things quickly, that you could set your own type, that you could lay something out, change it, change it, change it, do iteration after iteration, that was the thing that was, I think, the most empowering, was that we were not chained to a drawing table and tissue paper where it was a more—even though I— Love the hand skills and the craft that went into design at that time, that we could do things that we couldn't do before, faster, easier, cheaper, and we could play more. There was more opportunity to experiment.
0: Why do you think that so many of the practitioners of that time had such resistance to the technology?
1: We get used to doing things a certain way, and and also, quite honestly, at the time— Computers were—they weren't what they are today. A lot of the typography was dreadful. There were limited typeface choices. The older guys, especially Paul Rand and and those guys, they hated the computer.
0: Did you ever have an opportunity to work with Paul Rand?
1: No, but I did have a wonderful meeting with him. I was speaking at a design conference, the Modernism Design Conference that Steve Heller put together at SVA— and Paul Rand was going to be speaking there as well. And the night before, I had been to an antiquarian book fair, and I bought a copy of his book, The Stork Club Bar Book. Mm-hmm. The Stork Club being the great nightclub in in New York, and this was a gorgeous book. So I brought it with me, and I saw Paul Rand standing there with another older designer, a fellow named Lou Danzinger from Los Angeles,
0: Wow, what a a star sighting. Right.
1: And I went over to them and I said, excuse me, Mr. Rand, my name's Eric Baker. I'm a designer. And, you know, we chatted a minute and I pulled this book out and I said, Mr. Rand, I was wondering, could you sign this book for me? I hand him the book and he looks at it and he goes, where the fuck did you get this? (laughs) And I said, well, I was at an antiquarian book fair and I picked it up and And he goes, uh, Lou, come here. Look at this. Look at this. Is this fucking beautiful or what? I mean, this is gorgeous. Look at that type. These fucking kids today can't do this kind of type. It was beautiful. He's sitting there praising himself. And he was right. He was gorgeous. (laughs) He was a lovely, curmudgeonly guy. And uh, we owe a tremendous amount to him. We stand on his shoulders. So... I always gravitated to the old guys. They were the ones that had the stories, and you know, could impart a little bit of wisdom to you.
0: So, when you got to New York, you worked for several design firms. You started your own design firm shortly thereafter. What made you decide to do that, and how did you go about doing it?
1: I didn't like working for other people.
0: Mm-hmm. Problem with authority?
1: A little bit. <laughs> uh, and I wanted to do the things that I wanted to do. For example. I wanted to work with exciting, interesting people. And uh, what happened was my girlfriend at the time, Bonnie, who's now my wife, she was working at Sony Video Software. This is 86 or so. So
0: Betamax days. Betamax.
1: (laughs) And she was giving me projects to do. And I was doing packaging for videos on the Monterey Pop Festival or for a video for John Lennon all kinds of interesting things. And I was making money, and it was terrific. And then I started going after other clients, and I wanted to do work in publishing. That was a big thrust. At that time, of course, Karen Goldberg, Louise Feely, these were the people that basically helped reinvent the book cover, along with Carol Carson, of course, and Chip, Kidd, Barbara, Archie. Barbara DeWilde and Archie Ferguson. I began to work with some of those folks, doing book jackets. So you were doing a lot of work at Knopf? I was doing work for a lot of the publishers. It was great. This was everything I'd ever dreamed about, doing music stuff. I was beginning to do work for the Museum of Modern Art. It was heaven. And still, maybe one of the high points of my my working life was working with Gordon Parks, who... Was one of the great photographers of the 20th century, first black photographer for Life magazine, the director of Shaft, the first Shaft. And a writer. And a great, great writer. And uh, I worked with Gordon on his retrospective book, which was about a 400-page book. So we spent about a year together working on this. And... That was a life-changing event. You know, I can remember thinking this is why I moved here. And I have to also admit that I was kind of a—I wanted to work with cool people. I describe it as the spotlights on them. This book is not about me. It's about them. But a tiny little bit of that spotlight might splash on my toes. You know, I was a little bit of a groupie. I have to admit that. I love that. I can relate. Absolutely. So those kinds of projects, while they were incredibly dear and special to me, quite frankly, I didn't make a lot of money off of those. So it was trying to balance doing projects for money and doing projects for love, which I think most designers go through constantly, no matter who they are. You have to do things to make the cash that can support the other projects that don't make the cash.
0: James Victoria calls those the God projects.
1: Yeah. I liked what Stephen Doyle said about renting his soul to the devil.
0: As opposed to selling. Right. Yes. Right. Did you ever feel like you had to either rent or sell your soul to the devil? Oh, absolutely. In what way?
1: We have to do things or work with people or companies that we may not necessarily like. If I do work for HarperCollins, I'm working for News Corp. Therefore, I'm working for Rupert Murdoch. Therefore, I'm working for the same company that does Fox News. And Fox News is everything that I loathe. But we have to be pragmatic and practical about our work, about understanding that just because News Corp owns HarperCollins doesn't make HarperCollins a bad place. They do good books.
0: Well, let's talk about your book for a moment. You have a brand new <coughs> book out. It's a book that is a, an updated compendium of your three previous efforts writing this uh, type of book. It's called American Trademarks from the 20s to the Swinging 60s. And it features everything from the logos of Hallmark to the Kiss logo. And it is remarkable in its scope, it's remarkable in its depth, it's remarkable in its visual eye candy. One of the lines that I underlined in your book was, when speaking about older logos, that they're iconic ghosts, spirits of what we've been, as well as roadmaps to how we will communicate with each other in the future— First of all, what do you think is an iconic ghost? Can you give us an example of a mark that you think is an iconic ghost?
1: Oh, UPS.
0: So what do you think the trajectory of the UPS logo from Paul Rand's original beautiful box with the string and the gorgeous typography to the current future brand UPS logo, how do you think that is a roadmap to show how we are communicating?
1: I think that some things... And the things I speak of are are my own opinions. These are not truth. They're my opinions. They're Baker's truths, which I'm really interested in hearing. But some things shouldn't be changed. They just shouldn't. What was gained by changing the UPS logo? Now, of course, I have to appreciate that I'm speaking from the perspective of my age, my generation, my association with the UPS logo. Younger generations don't have that. It's one of those logos to me, the current logo, that it just has no soul whatsoever. It it doesn't feel right to me. I don't know how to express that except for it's just kind of a – it's one of those designs of that period that they just seem to be so many of those kinds of designs. While at the same time, I had no affection or attachment to the original FedEx logo. But the current FedEx logo that we know today is without question one of the best identities in the world.
0: Do you think that it's because we haven't lived with these new identities? I have very, very strong feelings about some of the logos that you're talking about as well. And I often wonder if my dislike of some of the newer logos that have come into our culture is really more because I'm unused to looking at them in the way in which they're now being presented. There was so much familiarity. Another quote from your book, you actually quoted Phil Meggs, the great design historian, and he said, "'Trademarks become miniature worlds that store memories, passions, and reputations in the minds of employees, customers, and stockholders, and we might also add society as a whole.'" And I'm wondering if because of those memories, our passion is instilled in those memories, that once those things change, we become extremely disrupted. And so I'm wondering if the dislike is more because of the graphic execution or more because of the change, as you talked about earlier, not liking that change.
1: I think it's both. Seeing New York change for me has been a really interesting analogy to that. I'd always been in this area, in Chelsea, in the Flatiron District. And when I was first here, Fifth Avenue, there was practically nothing. There was a stationery store, a barber shop, a newsstand. Uh, when the first, Jam
0: paper, remember? Yeah. <laughs> when the
1: first Korean deli opened, that was amazing. And now Fifth Avenue, you could be anywhere. You could be in Ohio. You could be in Florida. It's all... Big brand, big stores, uh, Banana Republic, The Gap, Sephora, you know, on and on and on. And that took away the character. For me, it took away the The character of, of, of what this neighborhood was. And I think that that's what can happen with a lot of brands. For instance, we all remember the 90s, the swoosh logos, how many... Logos there were that used some form of swoosh or another or those swoosh people or whatever. (laughs) they, They had no soul. They had no soul. They were ubiquitous. You didn't know one from the other. So those kinds of trends, if you will, design trends, they express a sort of lack of individuality on the part of the people commissioning the work, I think. Because they're saying, I want a logo like that logo, but different. But yeah, change, again, like I'd said earlier, change is inevitable. It is what it is. And I think also now there are more logos, more brands than we've ever, ever seen.
0: How do you inject soul or how do you include soul in the development of an identity?
1: when I'm teaching identity design, if somebody's doing, uh, for instance, one of my students is doing a dairy, an organic dairy. And how do we feel about that? What feeling does that evoke? Who owns this place? Who are the customers of this product? What are their outlooks? How do they see things? Is it truly organic or is it bullshit organic? Is it, you know, (laughs) it's kind of like the green thing going on, I think a lot of that is... uh, Greenwashed. Yeah. uh, Great expression. So how do we find the truth? We, We have to, I think, look at a lot of different ideas and find that one that resonates, that is believable. That organic dairy need not have a distressed typeface with a cow on it. You can do something entirely different that still rings true. And, you know, I think that a great part of what we do, of course, is the collaboration of working with other designers. For instance, at the O Group, the people that I work with, there's a rigorous process of what we call creative concepting, where we try to express and capture the feeling of what this is. What is this jewelry company? What is this this brand?
0: So the feeling that they want to... Inspire or the feeling of the people within the organization?
1: Well, I think both. I think that it's a matter of after a number of meetings with a client and having them fill out our creative brief and answer questions, that we sit down, we talk about it. Design doesn't begin at all until we've done some mood boards, we've looked at the competitive landscape. We see what we want to be, what we don't want to be, and then we can begin extracting from those visual cues what this identity might wish to be, what this brand wishes to be. And when I work on restaurants at the O Group, we do a good deal of hospitality. Some of the first questions, of course, are, you know, what's the food? What's the idea but for us also, architecture has a great deal to do with leading the direction that we might go with in terms of the strategy and the design of a project. It's also, you can analyze it and analyze it and analyze it, but I think it's very much a gut feeling. I think it's how, how something feels. Thank you for being on the show, Eric. Oh, it's really been
0: extraordinary to real delight have at... you here at the studio.
1: Thanks so much.
0: You can find out more about Eric Baker on the O Group's website, ogroup.net. I'd like to thank you for listening, and remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Melman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon.